Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program of information on the ever-changing world of accessibility. Now here are the hosts of this program, Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. Hello, I'm Nancy. And I'm Pete. Well, this week we'll be talking with someone who attended the Paralympics this year in South Korea, and we'll see how she trained and what the experience was like. We spoke with Stacy Manella about a week after she returned home from competing in four different alpine skiing events at the Pyeongchang Paralympics. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Stacy. I'd say that the tip of the week shouldn't be that if you want to do something, you should go out and fully commit to it because even the most ridiculous dreams are possible if you put a lot of work into it. You know, and really, that's one of the missions of this show that we've been doing for the past over seven years, to show that many things are possible that you may not think are possible. And you just have to put your mind to it, make the effort, and sometimes amazing things can happen. And we've actually had Stacy on the show before. The most recent time was four years ago, right after she came back from participating in the Sochi Paralympic Games. But the first time, she was a 15-year-old kid from New Jersey, which, if you don't know, is pretty flat, who had learned to ski at Wyndham Mountain, which is fairly short. And her dream was to participate in the Paralympics. And at the time, it seemed ridiculous, but she worked hard and apparently Anything is possible if you really put your mind to it, as she said. Let's start by meeting Stacy. I'm Stacy Manella. I am a skier on the U.S. Paralympic Alpine team and a student at Dartmouth. So we actually talked to you in several previous episodes of Eyes on Success back in 2012, in episode 1203 of Eyes on Success, about skiing back when you were in high school. And then we talked to you again about being in the Sochi Paralympics in episode 1415, and that was quite an experience. But just for our listeners who may not have heard those episodes, maybe you can tell a little bit about yourself. You are legally blind and do have some vision problems, right? Yeah, I'm a legally blind skier. I've been skiing for, um, oh, wow, it's been a long time, like about 10 years now. I've been with the U.S. Paralympic Alpine team since I was uh, 14, I think. Uh, I skied in Sochi, and then I just got back from Pyeongchang a couple days ago. And you're currently attending school at Dartmouth, right, and expect to graduate in about a year? Yeah, so I'm a student at Dartmouth. I flew home on Tuesday from Pyeongchang and started classes on Monday here at Dartmouth. So jumping right back into things. Adjusting to the time change. Trying to anyways. It's kind of a difficult time change, honestly. What is it, about 12 hours? Yeah, it's a lot. I'm still jet lagged. It's been a week, over a week, so... There are more things physically demanding about some of these sports than just going down the hill and being prepared for that, I guess, right? You've got to deal with jet lag and, and lots of other transitions. Oh, for sure. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. This week's focus topic is Stacy's experience alpine skiing at the Pyeongchang Paralympic Games a couple weeks ago. 
We'd like to talk to you a little bit about your experiences in this year's Paralympics in Korea. But before we do that, maybe you can talk a little bit about what's involved in how you ski and the adaptations that have to be made for your particular visual issues. Yeah, definitely. So I ski following a sighted guide. Um, we communicate with Bluetooth headsets that are in our helmets. And she kind of tells me everything that's happening that I might not be seeing. So different things like snow condition, changes in terrain, changes in the rhythm of the course, all of those things that, say, a sighted skier could just look ahead and to kind of figure out, um, she kind of relays back to me before I hit it. So the relationship that I have with my guide is something that's really important uh, to our success because I need to be able to completely trust that she is going to get me down safely, but also fast. So um, it's something that we've worked on for a long time. The girl that I skied with in Pyeongchang, her name is Sadie. We had worked together for three years leading up to the Games, and we became really good friends off the snow too, and I think that's kind of how we ended up being such a successful pair together. When we talked to you on the first episode and you were describing how you managed to ski following your sighted guide, at the time, you were skiing 55 miles an hour. Well, now you've participated in two Olympics. How fast do you typically go? I haven't actually had a radar on me since then, so I'm not entirely sure. I feel like I could probably break 60 at this point, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Sorry. When you're going down the slopes, you do have some vision. I know you are light sensitive to a, a big degree, but how much do you rely on your vision? Are you able to at least see your guide or some of the obstacles, or is your vision totally useless to you? Yeah, so I have a decent amount of vision. I always tell people that I'm pretty excited for a blind girl. I can see Sadie. She wears neon yellow speed suit when we race and some or- like bright orange on the top, and so I kind of tend to look at, like, the contrast between the yellow and the orange on her. Um, I can't see, like, small details of different things. Like, one time she lost her pole while we were skiing, and I didn't even notice till we got to the finish and she told me. But I kind of used her as a literal guide um, for the line that I need to then take. But I guess seeing things like subtle contours in the snow might be more difficult because you don't get such a great transition in the color or the shading. Yeah, exactly. So I can't really see any of the types of details, like changes of snow condition and that type of thing. Um, So that's kind of her job to make sure that I know what's coming up and where we're going and that type of thing. Many of your events, in fact, I think all of your events involve a lot of turns on your way down the mountain. So slalom, giant slalom. Mm -hmm. Can you see the gates or you just trust that if you follow Sadie, you'll get past them correctly? I can see the gates usually when Sadie passes them. Sometimes it gets a little tricky. There are certain like spots on hills that are like visually very challenging for me just because of either the way the sun is hitting the snow, if it gets really shadowy, um, those types of things really affect me. And so ultimately, like I should be able to trust that Sadie is taking me where I need to be and So, yeah, I don't need to rely on being able to see the gates, but I can see them a lot of the time. 
I looked at some of the YouTube videos of you skiing both in Sochi and in Pyeongchang, and it looks like you're skiing a lot more smoothly, but also a lot further back from your guide. That's not something that's like conscious. That's something that comes a lot with the rhythm, I think. And so we had a couple of runs at the games where we were like, our spacing was a little far there. And so for me, I'm like a lot more comfortable when I'm close to my guide. But it's hard to maintain that spacing all the time. And so sometimes when we're trying to like push it and be faster, the spacing can kind of get a little spread apart. For me, if I had to choose, like I would always want to be right on top of my guide because that's when I'm the most confident. But there's a lot of variables going on. There's undoubtedly a lot of practice that goes into preparing for these events. And I assume you practice many hours with your particular guide, but you probably can't practice with her all of the time. Do you practice with other people also? And how does that affect what you do? No. So for the last three years, basically Sadie's been my go-to. We traveled around full-time on the World Cup circuit. We skied world championships together last season. Um, and she kind of like wholeheartedly committed to this as well. And so you know, at the games, if you get on the podium, the guide gets a medal too. And I think it's really well-deserved because honestly, like the guide has to put in just as much effort and dedication as the blind skier. And so Sadie put in quite a lot of time for me too. So that was cool. Is she a student at Dartmouth also? Sadie, no, she is from Park City. So in the winters, like I would base out of Utah and train out of there so we could train together every day. So how do all these logistics fit into your other activity as a full-time student? How do you work this all out? So the reason that I came to Dartmouth is because Dartmouth is on trimester. And so basically what I do is I can take off the winter trimester. So I can go and I can ski full-time and then I come back in the spring to Dartmouth. So it works out perfectly. I have from the end of November to the end of March, which is our ski season. So I don't get too much time on snow in the fall, which is upsetting, but for the most part, I can fully commit to being an athlete for our season, main season. And then when I'm at school, I kind of juggle a dry land schedule, but it takes some juggling, but for the most part, it works out. And what do you do to keep in shape the rest of the year when you're not on the slopes? So we have a pretty extensive dry land program. Uh, we have a really great strength and conditioning coach on our team. And he writes us a program. He does like preseason testing at the Olympic Training Center and then writes us specific programs to make sure that we strengthen parts that we need, like the parts that we're weak and um, keep us in great shape for ski season. So I probably spend when I'm at school in a full program 15 hours a week in the gym. So it's quite a commitment. And I definitely have times where I'm like, well, I didn't finish my workout, but I have an organic chemistry final tomorrow. But for the most part, I can stay on a really strict dryland program here, and it's not a big deal. Fortunately, I assume you're pretty well organized, and I understand you're a pretty good student. I try. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. So I gather a lot of your conditioning involves weight training and stuff. I've, I know I follow you on Facebook, and 
For anybody who's interested, Stacy maintains a terrific Facebook feed. She doesn't post too much stuff, but, you know, a lot of information about your progress as a skier and, and stuff like that. And, and I've seen videos of you lifting very large weights. Um, yeah, so strength is definitely a big part of our program. A lot of skiing is, you know, you have a lot of G-forces coming down on you when you're skiing that fast. And so um, you can kind of mimic that with weights in the gym um, and being able to control that much weight and absorb that much weight is really good practice for us. And so I spend a lot of time with strength and conditioning, but I also think that the time I spend, I'm like very, not naturally strong, but my body, like I can build muscle relatively easily if I put some work into it. I think for me, the most important part of my program is the agility part where like we're switching directions and um, just foot movement and being able to jump and be quick and light on your feet and that type of stuff because that's also really important for skiing too to be able to move quickly from ski to ski. And so, um, yeah, I focus on that a lot too. I understand it's always been your goal to be in these Paralympics. When did you find out that you'd be accepted to the Korean Paralympics? So the team was named on February 20th, which was pretty close to the day that we were leaving. Wow. You kind of know, though, who's going to get named to the team. It's based off of world ranking and that type of thing. And so I was lucky. I skied a really strong season in 2016-17. So I kind of knew that I had a spot going into these games. And I understand you might have been coming off some injuries. That's pretty common to people who do what you do so aggressively. <laughs> yeah, I had a really, really hard season, but it's over now. We're moving forward. <laughs> I tore my MCL in December, and then I came back. I rehabbed really aggressively at the Olympic Training Center. I came back. I skied one race, and then I broke my thumb and got a concussion, and then I came back from that, but I don't know. It was just a difficult season. <laughs> the MCL is a ligament in the knee, right? Yes. Do things like that make athletes approach the next event with some trepidation? Or is that something you really just get over somehow? I think I worked really hard to not approach the next event with any fear. I think that it's challenging going into a Paralympics not having started in any World Cups this year. Um, and I think that was very noticeable in my results. But, you know, as an athlete, you go out every day and you do your best that you can do that day. And I wasn't necessarily blown away with how I skied at the game, but I did the best I could with a really bad season. And yeah, that's about all I could do. Well, I guess, as you say, that's part of being an athlete. So tell us what it was like when you arrived in Korea. What was it, you know, physically like and some of the people, your reception there? Yeah, Korea was really fun. Um, I skied there at the World Cup Finals test event in March of last year, and so it was my second time being there. Um, it's always fun to work with Team USA at an event like that just because it's on such a big scale. Um, and I think just being part of Team USA as a whole was just a fun experience. And, you know, it makes you feel like, oh, there's something bigger here. And so that's kind of fun to be a part of. 
the people in Korea were super nice. They did everything really well. Everyone was really organized. We had no issues with like the event being run. Yeah, I think overall it was a really positive experience. One of the things that really struck me in your description of your experience at Sochi was the extremely tight security. Did you have that at Pyeongchang also? Yeah, um, I think it was a little tighter in Sochi, to be honest, but like I never felt unsafe. Like we always went through security going in and out of the village. They kept a like very secure area. But I think that's almost necessary in an event that's such a large scale. I think they did a really good job of making sure we were all safe. So we actually watched some of the Paralympics on TV, and a lot of the team sports, they would have different types of people participating with different disabilities, Mm -hmm. and they had different number of points equivalents or a handicap for each of these people. So you had to have, you know, so many people with these many points and so many people with those many points to make up a team. And I'm wondering, I guess you participate mostly in solo events. How do they compensate for some of these differences in those events? Do you just compete against visually impaired people or some people with other handicaps? The Alpine events are divided up into three categories, which is visually impaired stand-up skiers and sit skiers. So the visually impaired category is divided up into three different classifications of visually impaired skiers. Um, there's B1, which is totally blind, blackout goggles. B2 is a little bit more sighted. And then B3 is the most sighted of those categories. And so I'm a B3, so I'm the most sighted of the athletes that are skiing in that event. So each of those classifications are then given a certain factor or a percentage of their raw time so that it's supposed to, like, even out the playing field, basically. Um, And so, basically, uh, the other categories, the stand-up categories, those are for people that are either missing a leg, missing an arm, sometimes people with, like, CP, who have, like, trouble controlling both of their legs, um, or those different types of motor disabilities could fall into the stand-up category. And then the sit skiers, those are people that are paraplegic or someone that maybe has both their legs amputated or that type of thing. So the factors do a really good job of evening out the playing field so that it makes it fair for different disabilities or different levels of disabilities to kind of compete against each other. And I guess this is very similar to how they handicap golfers when you're golfing on teams and with other people. Yeah. So speaking of the television coverage, I watched the highlights of the highlights, you know, after the whole thing was over. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me there was not a single visually impaired athlete featured on that show. How do you feel about the coverage that they gave to the people with various disabilities? Hmm. I actually don't know too much about that. I I was there, so I wasn't watching it on TV. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. I was excited because it was the most coverage that they've ever given to a Paralympic Games, which I thought was cool. And I think that's a step in the right direction for the U.S. because I know that in Europe and in other places, the Paralympics are taken very seriously, like as seriously as the Olympics. And I think the U.S. is a little behind in kind of adopting that. But... 
I don't know if the lack of representation for visually impaired athletes has to do with the performance of visually impaired athletes, if we didn't have that many people pulling podiums, and that's why, or if I don't really know how to comment on that. So I'm kind of curious. There's obviously a lot of anticipation and excitement uh, before going to these events and during the events. And sometimes after these events, it's like, you know, letting the air out of a balloon. I'm wondering how you felt after it was all over. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that I, Dave and I both kind of worked really, really hard to try to be our best at the games and particularly doing four events in such a short amount of time in that environment can be quite stressful. So there's definitely a little bit of relief after the last race is done. Uh, For me, I was a little bit upset with how the results came out. So I think that that was less of an excitement than it could have been. But yeah, there's definitely, I think by the end of an event like that, there's a lot of stress and emotion that goes into it. So you're pretty tired and kind of, for me, I was pretty ready to start thinking about other things. You need a vacation at some point. <laughs> yeah. My vacation is going back to school. What did you do to relax afterwards? It sounds like not much. You just went back into school quickly. I didn't have much time. Uh, we were lucky. We had an extra day, so we went down into Seoul, and we got to explore Seoul. Um, so that was kind of fun. That was relaxing. And then, yeah, I didn't do too much. I came home and packed for school. So you participated in four different alpine skiing events. Can you tell our listeners what those were and just a sentence or two to describe the difference for people who might not know the difference between all these events? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I competed in four out of the five alpine events at the Games. Um, The first was the Super G, which is a speed event with pretty uh, wide turns, high speed, longer course. Um, The second is the Super Combined, which is a Super G in the morning and a Slalom in the afternoon, which is a technical event, which we'll get to. Um, The third is the Giant Slalom, which is a technical event that is kind of more turns than the Super G, quicker on your feet, shorter course. And then the Slalom, which is the tightest turns of all of the events. And usually in a Slalom, there'll be... 50, 55 gates. So it's really quick, really short turns. So those are the four events that I competed in. There's also a fifth, which is the downhill. Uh, I did not compete in that, but that's the fastest and biggest turns that you'll see in Alpine events. So that one's almost straight. Yes, pretty close. And you were there for several weeks in South Korea. What did you do when you weren't skiing? I left on March 2nd. Uh, We went through team processing for a day, and then I actually went and trained up at a different venue for a couple of days. And then by the time our events started, you know, we have a lot to do to prep for those types of events, like getting in recovery workouts, making sure that our bodies are prepped for the next day. And so there's not too much time to just kind of do stuff. Um, my parents came out, so I spent a little bit of time with them, but I even didn't see them that much. Yeah, so we didn't have too much free time to go out and explore, but that's okay. That's not what we were there to do. So, After having participated in two of these Paralympics, do you plan to continue in competitive skiing? 
Yeah, I think so. I really love ski racing, and I think that especially because I wasn't totally happy with my results from these games, I want to leave ski racing on a positive note. So as of right now, the plan is to train and ski in Beijing in 2022. But yeah, we'll see what happens. Four years is a long time, but I'm committed to being the best that I can be. And I understand you're already ranked number three in the world in one of your events. So you're doing pretty well. I'm doing all right. Now for this week's final item, how you can learn more about and get involved in alpine skiing and how you can follow Stacy's progress. So for people who are interested in some of these Paralympic events or just athletics having a disability in general, do you have any resources that you might point them to? Yeah, for sure. I started ski racing at the Adaptive Sports Foundation in Wyndham. That would be a great resource for someone who wanted to start. They are a program that gets people with disabilities out on snow or doing other sports. And so I love skiing for them. And yeah, I think that would be a great resource. Do you have their web address? Uh, AdaptiveSportsFoundation.org. Windham Mountain is just like the ski resort that I grew up skiing at. And the Adaptive Sports Foundation is the program. Do you know of an umbrella organization for people who might not be in upstate New York? I mean, you could go to Disabled Sports USA, DSUSA. That's DSUSA.org? Yeah. And if people wanted to follow you or connect with you, could they do that? Yeah, that'd be great. Um, they can follow me on Facebook. My athlete page is under Stacey Manella, S-T-A-C-I-M-A-N-N-E-L-L-A. I also have a website, stacymanella.com, and an Instagram, stacyskier96, uh, Twitter, also stacyskier96, and I think that's about all the social media options. Great. Wow, terrific. And if you're looking for any of that contact information, you can find them in our show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. We'll also have links to the previous episodes in which we talked with Stacy in the show notes. Also, if you're looking for other episodes about sports, Paralympics, or recreational activities, outdoors, indoors, whatever... Use the search feature on our website. It's very easy to just enter any search term you want or a keyword or even a show number, and then you'll find a summary of those episodes that match your search terms along with links to the audio and the show notes for those episodes. That's it for show number 1816. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be having the first of a two-part series. In the first show, we'll be talking about audio information services in general and get an overview of the services provided by the Audio Information Network of Colorado in particular by having a conversation with its director, David Dawson. And the week after that, we will have a virtual tour of their facilities and get to see and learn about more of their programs in detail.
If you have any questions regarding something you've heard about on the show or you'd like to share an idea for a future show, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net or call us at 585-210-8094. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. Browse the full archive of programs, find instructions for subscribing to the podcasts, and much more at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You can also find us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook at Eyes on Success or Twitter at underscore Eyes on Success. We hope you will join us again next week for more information and updates on products for accessible living. Thanks for listening to Eyes on Success and have a nice day.